Now, dear friends, our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Someone asked me the other day why I decided to embark on a study of Matthew's gospel at Christ the King. And my answer was simply that I want us as a church to encounter Jesus. It just seems to me that we need an extended period of time in a gospel at Christ the King. Not because we can't find Jesus elsewhere in the scriptures. He's always in view no matter what book we study. But recently I felt we need to read the gospels more, or at least I need to. That we need perhaps to encounter the person who walks out of the pages of the gospels to meet us. Because the Jesus of the gospels is always a surprise, I think. We've never got him figured out and he never leaves us unchanged. So my goal is that we encounter Jesus. As we put ourselves into the stories of Matthew's gospel, as we let Jesus' words and actions penetrate our souls, Whatever else the four Gospels are about, their central purpose is simple. They're meant to show us Jesus, to answer the question, who is he? It's a question that comes up not infrequently within the Gospels themselves, as you no doubt know. When a storm threatens to capsize a boat, carrying his disciples, and Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves, and they stop, his disciples ask in astonishment, who is this? When a notorious woman of the city enters the place where Jesus is eating with Pharisees and anoints his feet with expensive perfume and Jesus tells her, your sins are forgiven, those Pharisees ask incredulously, who is this? When Jesus enters Jerusalem, attended by a crowd that lays cloak and palm branches on the road, calling out, Hosanna to the son of David, and the whole city, it says, is stirred up, and they are asking, who is this? Are you the Christ? The high priest asks Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Asks Pontius Pilate. Are you the son of God? Asks the whole council. The question that drives all four of the gospels is, who is Jesus? And by extension, why does he matter? What has he come to do? Now, while all the four gospels address these questions, they don't all do it in exactly the same way. Each gives an inaccurate recounting of the historical details of Jesus's life and ministry, yet each offers a unique perspective. We could see that simply by reading the first verse or verses of each of the gospels. Mark chapter one, verse one says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. It's a fitting opening for a book that appears to be focused on the basic proclamation of the gospel for those who may have needed a primer on Jesus's life and ministry. 
Luke begins with four verses that state explicitly that that gospel was written to provide a historical recounting to convince Theophilus of the factuality of the life and ministry of Jesus. And when John's gospel begins in verse one with, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and, and the word was with God and the word was God, we sense immediately that that gospel gives us a theological reflection about Jesus as the eternal logos. But what about Matthew? What can we understand to be Matthew's focus from just the opening verse of his gospel? If you have your Bible there and would look at verse one of our text, Matthew one, verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, straight away, we find ourselves in something of an interpretive challenge because behind the ESV's word genealogy there is the Greek word Genesis. It is the word that is also the title of the very first book of the Old Testament in the Greek Septuagint, Genesis. It's a word which means beginnings or origin. Now, Genesis can refer to the birth of a human being, and that's exactly how it is used just a little later in Matthew 1, verse 18, where the ESV says, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's literally the Genesis of Jesus Christ. So it's possible that the phrase there in Matthew 1, verse 1, refers to the account of Jesus' birth that does in fact start with a genealogy. So the translators say the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Before then, it moves on to the account of the birth itself. But if this is the title, it seems to me that its use in verse one may mean more than just that. Because the only other place where the exact expression in Matthew one verse one is found is in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter two, verse four, and Genesis chapter five, verse one in the Greek version, of course. Those are verses that introduce the generations of God's creation of the universe and of all human creatures. And given that resonance, I suggest that Matthew chapter one, verse one, isn't just a heading for the genealogical list that follows that instead it's a title for the entire book about Jesus. I suggest that just as Genesis gives the story of one beginning of God's creation and God's covenant relations with Israel, so the gospel of Matthew gives the story of a new beginning, of the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who will fulfill those covenants and be with his people always to the end of the age, as the very last words of Matthew's gospel say. That's how I understand it, at least. And so what I want to do is use the title in verse one to structure the remainder of my sermon this afternoon. Just in verse one, we can see four things about who Jesus is. First, of course, he is Jesus, the Savior. Second, he's the Christ. Third, he's the son of David. And fourth, he's the son of Abraham. He's Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's an awful lot to pack into the very opening verse of a book. 
And it also tells us a lot about what Matthew has to say in his gospel and in, indeed in the genealogy before us this morning. So first, the name Jesus. Now Matthew will explain the significance of that name in next week's text, but we can go there now quickly if you look ahead to verse 21 of chapter 1. There in Matthew 1.21, the angel of the Lord says to Joseph, about the child to be born to Mary, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now in common practice, a person had a single personal name which often carried some religious significance. Jesus is the Greek version of Yeshua in Hebrew. We would say Joshua. It means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. So Mary's son is the one who brings Yahweh's promised salvation. Only what's in view isn't in the first place salvation from military enemies or physical danger, though of course Jesus would save some people from physical illness and danger in his ministry as a preview of God's eternal restoration of all things. But what's in view in chapter 1, verse 21, and what becomes the central message of the gospel is what we read about two weeks ago in Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God promises one day to save us from all enemies and disease and even death itself. But by his incarnation, Jesus began to address the problem that lies at the root of it all. He came to save us from our sins. We'll talk more about that next week. But perhaps it strikes you that there's plenty of evidence that God's people need saving from sin just from the genealogy itself. Take the second part of Matthew's genealogy that began in the, begins in the second part of verse 6, verse 6b to 11. Clearly, we can say there's no pattern of righteousness in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus descended from the line of Jewish kings is the point Matthew's making here. And he names 15 of them, from David to Jeconiah. But what strikes me is that if you know anything about the kings listed there, you know that about half of them were men of faith and half were just truly wicked. And even among those of faith, striking sins were committed. David was a man of faith, but we covered his massive failures at length when we studied 1st and 2nd Samuel. Wicked Rehoboam and his wicked son Abijah had offspring who were good kings, Asa and Jehoshaphat. But then their offspring was the wicked king Joram, and on it goes. Uzziah ruled successfully for years, but then he became proud and usurped the role of a priest. Ahaz, two down from Uzziah worshipped the pagan gods of Assyria and killed one of his own sons and defiled the Lord's altar and installed pagan altars instead. And then Hezekiah was pretty good. But then according to 2 Kings chapter 21, his son Manasseh 
did more evil than the nations that the Lord drove out of Canaan as he promoted the worship of idols and murdered innocent people. So that the point I'm making is just a simple one. Jesus' own people, his own family needed him to save them from their sins. And as the last part of the genealogy shows, Israel was suffering the consequences of its sin. Verse 12 begins, after the deportation to Babylon, because of course this was then after the Assyrians and the Babylonians had conquered the people of Israel and Judah. We don't know anything about most of the names in that third part of Matthew's genealogy, but the point I'm making is, don't read this list of names and imagine that Matthew's purpose in opening his gospel is to celebrate Jesus' ancestry as somehow worthy or righteous or deserving of the Messiah who would be born through them all. Far from it. It's more like the point is that Jesus being born had nothing to do with them. That it was all God's sovereign work to bring about salvation through the course of history. As one commentator puts it, good or evil, they were part of the Savior's line. For though grace does not run in the blood, God's providence cannot be deceived or outmaneuvered. So his name is Jesus. But secondly, from verse 1, Jesus is, of course, the Christ. Now we get the sense of how this works from the end of verse 16, where Matthew says in our passage, verse 16, Jesus was born who is called Christ. In other words, Christ, sorry, Christ isn't part of Jesus' name. It's a title. It's a title that's derived from the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah meaning anointed one. In the Old Testament, the term Mashiach could refer to a variety of people who were set apart or empowered by God for some special function. But it was used most often for priests, kings, and sometimes prophets. And of course, Jesus fulfills all of those Old Testament roles, but over time, the primary emphasis of the Messiah language centers on kingship. Already in the prophetic prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 verse 10, we read how the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And with the rising number of Old Testament prophecies concerning King David's line, Messiah or Christ, became the designation of a kingly figure, representing the people of God who would bring in the promised eschatological reign. In Jesus' own day, Palestine was filled with expectation regarding the Messiah. Most Israelites hoped the Messiah would lead them in a military victory to bring about release from Rome. But it wasn't just that. They also thought Messiah would somehow triumph over unrighteousness and purify the nation. But listen to how one text from 
a book called the Psalms of Solomon, which was a book from the first and, or second century BC, so anticipating a, a bit ahead of Jesus's birth, a text from the Psalms of Solomon reads like this, see Lord and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God, undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. Well, according to Matthew, the time of salvation known only to God has arrived with the advent of Jesus. The Messiah has come. And yet, as one author puts it, as the story unfolds, the reader learns that Jesus will not reign over a kingdom in Israel, but will have all authority in heaven and earth. The reader learns that his eternal throne of glory will be an inglorious cross. And the reader learns that he will take away the sins of his people, not drive away sinners. And his kingdom shall include, not subjugate, men and women from the Gentile nations. Now closely connected to the concept of Messiah is the third thing that Matthew says about Jesus, that he is the son of David. Now it's evident from the way that Matthew has simply structured the genealogy that he wants us to see David as the key turning point. As verse 17 explains, in Matthew's accounting, there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from the rise of David to when Israel goes into exile, and 14 until the Christ, the son of David, was born. But why structure it that way in sets of 14? Well, there are various theories. What's clear is that it's not simply a matter of historical observation or Matthew recording statistical data. Matthew's list here is selective at points to make it fit this structure. We know that because to keep the number of generations between David and Jehoiachin to 14 in the second grouping of the genealogy, Matthew in fact omits four or five of the kings that are recorded in Old Testament history. In other words, Matthew makes all three sets, 14 generations by design. This was not uncommon in genealogical listings of the day. Sometimes it was to help memorization or for other purposes. The question is, why did Matthew do this? I think that the point is to drive home the fact that Jesus is the son of David. Note, first of all, that of all the kings mentioned, only David is called the king at the end of the first set of 14 names. The central set then runs from the foundation of the united monarchy under David to the final ending of that monarchy of Judah at the time of the Babylonian exile, so that David and Jehoiachin structurally represent the first and last kings of the dynasty of Judah. And then as one commentator puts it, Matthew thus signals that this is a royal list, 
with the probable implication that the throne succession has continued while the actual monarchy has been in eclipse until it reaches the destined son of David in the birth of the Messiah from this royal line. Which maybe explains the use of 14 in each part of this genealogy, because the best explanation I've come across suggests that Matthew's focus on the number 14 is derived from his observation that there were in fact 14 names in the genealogical list that goes from Abraham to David as recorded in the Old Testament. You can work that out for yourself from the genealogies in 1 Chronicles 1 and 2, as well as the end of the book of Ruth. It's exactly 14. So that the suggestion is then that Matthew took his cue from the 14 generations that led up to David, the king, and realized that a little adjustment of the king list would allow him to produce a symmetrical pattern with the period of the monarchy then highlighted in the center. And in that case, one author says, the theological focus of Matthew's book of origin is not so much on the number 14 itself as on the royal dimension, which his symmetrical structure has brought to light by tracing the line of succession, which finds its culmination in the coming of Jesus, the son of David, and thus potentially the restoration of the monarchy. In other words, the whole structure of Matthew's genealogy is perhaps meant to reinforce Jesus's identity as the king, the messianic son of David. Of course, that whole concept of the son of David is rooted in the promise that the Lord gave David in 2 Samuel 7, that David's kingdom and his throne would somehow endure forever. The prophets, of course, pick up on this. Isaiah famously foresees a son who will be given the most extravagant titles, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus and his ministry were perceived as God's fulfillment of these promises now centuries old. Nine times in Matthew, Jesus is called son of David, more than any other gospel. And we get a sense of the people's expectations surrounding that title if you just survey some of the uses. It wasn't just an expectation of political restoration. It was an expectation of healing, in fact. Healing for the land and for the people. Early in his ministry in Galilee, two blind men follow Jesus and call out, have mercy on, on us, son of David. Once a Canaanite woman approaches Jesus crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Or again, just before entering Jerusalem, two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. In his last week of ministry, as Jesus heals many in the temple precincts, the children are the ones who begin to shout praise, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests and the scribes become indignant and ask, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. 
Have you never read? He says, quoting from Psalm 8, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. As we'll see again and again in Matthew, Jesus is the son of David. The genealogy sets up that expectation. He is the long expected king who is also the healer of his people. Which brings us to the fourth and final thing Matthew says about Jesus in the opening verse of this gospel. And that is that Jesus is the son of Abraham. At first that doesn't seem to provide any vital information about him except that he was a Jew, since all Jews were considered sons of Abraham. But I think it's something specific about God's promise to Abraham that's in view here. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, God promises Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul reminds us in Galatians 3 that Jesus Christ is that seed in whose name the Gentiles will find hope. And we see that reality in Matthew's gospel as well. When Jesus is born, it's Gentiles from the east in Matthew's gospel who famously come to worship him in Matthew chapter two. In Matthew chapter four, Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter nine to draw attention to Galilee of the Gentiles as those receiving a great light. And of course, by the end, the entire gospel's ending with Jesus sending his disciples to all the nations. But even here in the genealogy, there are hints that the salvation Jesus brings will be for all people. The genealogy begins with Abraham, of course, the father of Israel. But the point isn't that Jesus is only for the Jews. The point is that Jesus is for all the children of Abraham. And Abraham, after all, was himself from Ur of the Chaldeans before God called him. He was the father of the covenant people, but he began life as a pagan. God chose him to establish his people Israel, but from the beginning, God swore he would give Abraham back to the nations. God's first promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses two and three says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Which is why it's also significant, I think, to note that within the genealogy of Matthew chapter one, we find four instances when women are mentioned prior to Mary. Did you pick up on that? It's important because women were not normally included in genealogies unless there was an irregularity or some noteworthy association. No woman, not even Mary, appears in the genealogy of Jesus that's in Luke chapter three. But what's even more surprising is the fact that the women Matthew mentions here aren't the great matriarchs of Israel even though they, the four of them lived at important phases in Israel's history. Verse three mentions Tamar, who lived in the time of the patriarchs. Verse five mentions Rahab from the time of the conquest and Ruth from the time of the judges. 
And verse 6 mentions Bathsheba, though not by name, from the time of the monarchy. These four women are never listed together in any other known Jewish text. So what's Matthew saying by including them in his genealogy? Well, here again, I've read different explanations, but the one I think makes the most sense begins with the observation that three of these women were Gentiles. And the fourth was probably regarded as such. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba, though the daughter of an Israelite, was married to Uriah the Hittite, and so was probably regarded as one herself, which may in fact be why Matthew only refers to her as the wife of Uriah. And if that's the thread here, then the point becomes clearer. It's that the Jewish Messiah extends his blessings beyond Israel, even as Gentiles have been grafted into the Davidic line. God's offer of salvation will be universal, and we can take it one step further, I think, because these are not just any Gentiles. Their stories reveal that they were pious Gentiles. These women each represent a crucial period in Israel's history when a Gentile displays righteous character beyond that of many other Israelites. So that Judah must confess in the end that Tamar is more righteous than he, in Genesis 38, verse 26. Rahab trusted the pledge of the spies to protect her and her family in Joshua 6, and is even mentioned in Hebrews 11 as an example of faith. In Ruth, chapter 3, Ruth is praised as she looks for a husband in accordance with the Jewish custom of leveret marriage and seeks to provide for her Jewish mother-in-law. And in 2 Samuel 11, Uriah the Hittite refuses to violate the taboos regarding those consecrated for war and is seen as more righteous than King David, who takes Bathsheba for his sexual pleasure, tries to get Uriah drunk so he will break his vow, and finally orchestrates the man's death on the battlefield. The stories behind these four names in Matthew's genealogy perhaps prepare us for the kind of tenacious faith that we'll see, for example, in the Gentile centurion in Matthew 8 and the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, faith that surpasses that found even in Israel, Jesus says. Well, the overriding importance of Matthew's opening verses is then to understand that God has been faithful to his kingdom promises to David and to the Gentile blessings promised to Abraham. The Savior has come. He is the Messiah, both the son of David and son of Abraham. With his birth, the dawning of salvation has arrived for all people. And it's on that note that I'd like to conclude as Matthew traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, he clarifies that the covenantal promise includes all humanity. And that means you and I can find our roots in the salvation history traced in Jesus' genealogy. When a person becomes a Christian, 
she or he is immediately adopted into a family of faith. Through church history, we can trace back through nearly 2,000 years to the family of faith initiated by Jesus, and through him to the covenantal roots God had established through the patriarch Abraham. As the Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In Jesus Christ and his ministry is the fulfillment of God's covenant to the people of Israel and to God's promise to bring universal hope to all the nations. All who have heard his call to salvation are able to join his spiritual family. We are all sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. That's the promise of the gospel in Matthew. And that's the promise we'll now celebrate as we turn our attention to Ambrose's baptism. Thanks be to God, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>